Our big idea this morning is that Jesus restores our relationship to one another and to Him. And the one another part is very important this morning precisely because of her previous relationship with them within that town of Sychar. Let's start with the idea that Jesus enables us to love those who've harmed us. We have encountered this sinful Samaritan woman. She has, we believe, received the promised Holy Spirit. She's then excited to discover that Jesus is the Christ that she has been waiting for, and she goes back into the town to tell other people about him while Jesus has this discussion with his disciples. So now they're coming back to hear from Jesus himself. To whom does she go? Well, she goes to the people she knows. Just as we, many of us, when, if we were converted a little later in life, we tended to go back to the people we know, the relationships we already had, and say, hey, something's happened to me. That's exactly what she does. She goes to the people of Sychar. But of course, there is a little bit of a problem. There's a reason, remember, why she is there at the middle of the day getting water. It is precisely because the people of that town looked down on her. And they most likely let her know that they looked down on her. With words, with looks, with gestures. She was an outcast. Now the reports that were spread about her were probably generally true. Jesus has earlier exposed the the nature of her own sin. But... The way in which the reason why the the source of these reports really came from a bad heart, as Matthew Mitchell talks about in his book, Resisting uh, Gossip. They did not do this to call her to repentance. They did this to shame her, to cause her to move away and withdraw. And so uh, their words about her, their words to her, really reshaped her world, but in a very negative way. She was an outsider, and she knew it. They condemned her. In many ways, they harmed her. They did damage to her soul. Just as we read about in our call to worship, the the fear that the psalmist has about those who are seeking his life. Just as we read from Psalm 139, there were those who who were also seeking to, they were speaking against him, seeking to destroy, and these people were seeking to destroy this young woman with their words and their actions. It's not like today. There was no reputation.com that she could turn to. I was watching TV the other day. I think it was a sports game or something. And they had a commercial for reputation.com. And some of you have probably heard about it. And it's the way to restore your online reputation. You know, they go and they try to get rid of the bad reports about you. And they try to increase the good reports about you. And I wonder if they, they manufacture good reports about you. I'm not really sure how this works. Don't want to know. There was no one that was seemingly was there for her to rebuild her reputation, to restore her reputation, to silence those who were speaking against her. She, she needed an advocate in many ways. She would find eventually that she would have one. Matthew Mitchell speaks to those that issue in his book, of those who have been the victim of gossip, And he says, he reminds them that God will see that justice is done, 
for those who cry out for it. Your reputation will be saved, but you may have to wait for it to happen. Now, this woman's reputation here is about to be completely changed within this town. She remember, she tells them, Jesus told me all I ever did. But he did it in a very different way than from how they did it. He did it to draw her closer, not to push her away. He did it to ultimately heal her and restore her. He did it not to bring a message of condemnation, but to bring conviction that would result in repentance. You see, that's how you can tell the difference between the voice of the devil and the voice of the Spirit. If you're drawn to withdraw from your sin, it's most likely the voice of the devil wanting to isolate you and feel the weight of condemnation. But if you feel a a pull to confess your sin, to feel a sense of conviction that I've done something wrong and I need help with it, that's the Spirit. That's a very important distinction to make. Because sometimes we, we don't recognize that it is, in fact, the evil one who speaks to us. We live in that sense of condemnation. We forget the good news of the gospel in Romans 8.1. And we withdraw and we hide and we feel miserable instead of feeling the for great relief of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. His words changed her, but in a better way. Because she doesn't just find personal salvation, but it changes her relationship with the people who had harmed her. She doesn't write them off. She begins to move towards them. She returns to this town. And instead of returning evil for evil, she returns good for evil. Because she speaks the news of the Savior who has come. So that they too might find forgiveness. Wink, wink for their gossip and other sins. She loved them. She blessed them by giving them this knowledge that this man she met out by the well was the Messiah. In a sense, she's living what Paul would say in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. She's living out the Sermon on the Mount which she never heard. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And so without all of, these teach, all of this teaching, she's doing these very things, I think, because of the work of God's Holy Spirit within her. Leading her out of the way she had always been and into the new way of Christ moving towards people in love and faithfulness. The Spirit that moves her to worship, that moves her to witness, also moves her to forgive and to love as she has been forgiven and loved by Christ. And so the gospel changes us so that we can love those who have done us wrong instead of seeking vengeance against them. 
Secondly, I want us to consider that Jesus uses ordinary sinners to testify to other sinners. We see that in the whole story here, this woman at the well has undergone a shift. We, we see that first she sees this man whom she does not know as just a thirsty Jew and perhaps a very strange, crazy thirsty Jew. Then she comes to see that he is at very least possibly a prophet and then ultimately she sees that he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. There was a progress, there was a shift and a change in how she understood him. Let's remember for a second. Jesus knows everything she has ever done. So, he also knows everything you have done. That should be a little disconcerting for us. As we see in... Psalm 139, even before a word is on our lips, he knows it. So even the unspoken mean things that we have wanted to say to people but bit our tongue on, he knows those. He knows the darkest desires of our hearts. He knows the the things we've done in secret that no one else knows about. He knows. He knows precisely who we are in a way that no one else can ever know. Francis Schaeffer mentions this. We must stress this great comfort. God never looks at any Christian through rose-colored glasses. He knows exactly who you are outside of Jesus Christ, just as much as he knows who you are in Jesus Christ. We see that, he, that this is a woman. Okay, she's not a legal witness. If she was in Israel, and, the, and of course, remember the, the five, first five books of the Old Testament they had in common, and so there were, there's some of their religious experience, there was overlap, and women were not permitted to give legal testimony. Their words were not taken as legally binding, truthful, unfortunately. But she's also a Samaritan as well as a scandalous sinner. And yet Jesus is in the process of using her. She's not the only person who is persona non grata that Jesus ends up using. Think for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now that means some of them were, but not most of them weren't. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Think of her for a moment. She's not of noble birth. She's not wise. She's not powerful. She is, in fact, low and despised in the world, and yet used for a great task. You see, Jesus uses ordinary people to lead others to a saving faith in Christ. 
How many of you know the name Edward? Gotta make sure I say it right. <laughs> Kimball. I wasn't sure if there was an R in there. Kimball. Edward Kimball. There was a young man who had lost his father when he was young, and uh, as he was getting older, he had to leave the, the family home as his brothers had, and they went to an uncle's house, and they worked for, he worked for his uncle, and one of the stipulations for him to uh, stay and work with his uncle was that he had to go to church. And at church, there was a na- man named Edward Kimball, who was his Sunday school teacher. And it was Edward Kimball who led D.L. Moody to faith in Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody, of course, came on to be one of the greater evangelists along with Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. A simple Sunday school teacher. A person like you. So here we have this Samaritan woman in the testimony of Scripture is that many Samaritans believed in Christ based on her testimony. In other words, the Spirit was at work, not just in her, the Spirit was at work through her. And so we see that Jesus uses notorious sinners. He saves them so that they might tell others about Him. I loved this past week. Because it was the, they celebrated the 10th anniversary of the Boston Red Sox, the idiots who won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. And so all of the gang was back in town, and uh, there were a lot of articles about this. And there was one thing that I had heard about, and it was interesting and exciting to finally see in print. And that was about Manny Ramirez. Now, most of you probably don't know, there was a phrase, Manny being Manny, which means that Manny was being a moron. Manny didn't have a good reputation. He was a great hitter, but he had a reputation for being a not-so-great person. And so there was a period in 2008 when he was, he was trying very hard to get traded from the Red Sox, and he eventually got his trade. There would be times he wouldn't run out ground balls. There's times uh, when he'd just stand and take pitches and strike out. But it wasn't just on the baseball field. There's one instance where he went to the traveling secretary, an old man, and threw him down because he wouldn't, you know, just pushed him and shoved him onto the ground because he wouldn't do what Manny wanted. Manny was self-absorbed, he was rich, and not a nice guy. Then there were the PED tests, the positive tests. It was revealed that Manny was on steroids. Persona non grata in baseball for a couple of years, for good reason. Then there was the arrest for striking his wife. It was then when Manny realized his life was a disaster. He began to go to Bible study, came to faith in Jesus Christ, and now even even in the Boston Globe... That bastion of secular humanism in the Northeast, okay? He, he is able to say these words. The Bible says that when you come to Christ, you a new man. He takes your sins and he throws them in the sea. And he's going to clean you like the snow. I don't worry about the past because I know Jesus lives in me. Jesus, uh, Manny Ramirez has gone from a notorious sinner to a saint 
who preaches forgiveness in Jesus Christ. What a great story. Not just because I'm a Red Sox fan, but it's a redemption story. Of how God uses, and that's, I almost, I, well, I was weeping in my office. Thinking about how God uses such people like myself to make Christ known. He uses ordinary sinners to make Jesus known. And so our sin, if it's forgiven anyway, does not disqualify us from telling people about Jesus. It actually qualifies you to tell people about Jesus, precisely because he is the Savior of sinners. It's like trying to sell a product you never use yourself. The sinner who has found grace and pardon from Jesus knows that which he speaks of. They are qualified to declare that Jesus is the Savior of sinners in a way that the person who has never known this can do. Only those who trust Him and have found Him faithful can proclaim Him as who He is. And so these men and women in this town of Sychar, they kind of rush out to meet Jesus while the disciples are talking to them. They finally descend upon Jesus, and this phrase that is used in the ESV, they asked Him to stay. That's really weak when you think of what's going on and the grammar that is there. It's an imperfect, which means it keeps happening. They keep asking Jesus. They're pleading with Jesus to stay. They want to know more. There's a drive and a hunger within them that is making this happen. And so Jesus stays with them for two more days. He talks with them for two more days. And the testimony of John says that many more believed because of His Word. This is the first fruits of the Gospel among the Samaritans. We don't really hear anything about the Samaritans again until we get to Acts chapter 8 when, when because of the persecution in Jerusalem, some of the Christians end up in Samaria and a revival breaks out because of the preaching of men like Philip the Evangelist. But this is the first fruits. This is the beginning. This is showing us of what's going to come, is that Jesus is not just for the Jews, but is for more. This reminds us that often all we're doing when we witness is that we're bringing people to where they can hear His Word. We're bringing people to where they can hear the preaching of the Word, to where they can have Bible study, so they can find out from Christ's Word itself who He is, what He has done. And so ordinary sinners like us need not fear. God can use us to help change lives. But it all rests upon this. Jesus is the Savior of the world, one person at a time. Those who believed in Christ approached the still unnamed woman to encourage her. They declared to her that their faith has shifted from what you said to what we have heard for ourselves. Okay, now they're no longer relying on her testimony. Now they have firsthand experience as to who Jesus is and what Jesus says. I think this is important, particularly for covenant children. You know who you are. 
There must be a shift that takes place where your parents' faith becomes your own faith. Where you believe not just because your parents believe, but you believe because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And you embrace it for yourself. All of us must do that if we have not. In some ways, I'm reminded of the Berean Christians. In Acts 17, remember the Thessalonians. Now, in the, in the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul talks about how the ones who believed, uh, you know, they, they took God, his word as the word of God, but there, was, there were a lot of people who didn't and made life miserable for Paul and chased Paul out of Thessalonica. And so when Paul gets to Berea, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were noble. They examined it. They didn't just write it off or blindly accept it. They checked it. And so like the Bereans, these Samaritans are displaying greater wisdom than the Jewish leaders were expressing. But also, as we're going to see, than the Galileans who knew Jesus were going to express. Okay, when we get to chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we're going to see the ways in which Jesus is rejected among his own people. So the Samaritans display a greater nobility. The despised, lowly Samaritans, by the grace of God, are going to respond in a more noble fashion than Jesus' own people. They declare that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, there were many people who made this claim. The Greek gods, for instance, took this title to themselves. Not sure exactly how they saved the world or why they thought they would have this title. The Emperor Hadrian took this title to himself. A Roman emperor. I love the irony of this story, in a sense. I've, I've gone to England, and uh, this was the day after I destroyed my knee at Ben Nevis, so I was, uh, I was all, my muscles were all just a, a big sore mass because I'd climbed a mountain, and I hadn't climbed it in a while. That's what happens when you live in Florida. You don't climb mountains anymore. You climb one, and you, and you almost die, okay? <clears throat> it was snowing. I mean, well, not snowing. It was, it was 80-something on the, at the base, and then it was, there was still snow and wind at the top of Ben Nevis. Anyway... The next day we go and we see what's left of Hadrian's Wall. This little stone wall that kind of stretches out into the English countryside along the border between England and Scotland. And you see the, the remnants of where the soldiers used to st- sit and, and look out and make sure that the, those bad Scottish people, sorry, <laughs> those evil Scottish people weren't coming. Those, you know, uh, the, the ladies from hell in their kilts, you know. Um, <clears throat> And Hadrian sort of saw himself as this figure who's saving the Roman Empire, the world, from people like that. But you know what the Romans did? Is they took some of the Christians and tossed them over the wall, in effect, to let the Celts get them. And what ended up happening is that they did what the the Roman army couldn't do. They defeated the Celts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They converted the Celts they civilized them. And now, thankfully, they're Presbyter- they were Presbyterians. 
I, I don't say I don't make any claims for the Scots now over there, but uh, there's some good godly people there still fighting the good fight. But we see, Hadrian couldn't save, but Jesus did. Not just the Samaritans, but also the Scots, the Germans, the Indians, and so many more peoples. This is probably part of what's behind John when he writes in 1 John chapter 2 about people who, he doesn't want them to sin, but he wants to remind them what happens when they do sin. That, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's not just about Israel. It's about others. People that sometimes we don't want it to be for. But it is for them as well. Now, they didn't probably understand when they said Savior of the world. I'm not sure, you know, we don't know what was going through their minds, what they meant by that. We can't sit them down and talk to them. Maybe one day in heaven we can ask them. But nonetheless, they probably didn't have in mind the substitute who would shed his blood for sinners. Because remember, they didn't have the prophets. And even those who had the prophets didn't quite get that one until the Spirit opened their eyes to it. What we recognize from places like Isaiah 43, where it says this, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So what they are unwittingly confessing is that they believe that Jesus Christ is not only the Savior of the world, but he is Yahweh himself. We see that the Trinity works together for the Savior, for the salvation of sinners. We saw it in chapter 3, if you remember. It starts off with the regeneration of the Spirit. You must be born again. You must be born from above. And then it goes into the love of the Father who sends the Son. And then it culminates in the Son's sacrifice upon the cross. Well, here in chapter 4, we also see the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. We see the gift of the Holy Spirit that wells up in eternal life. We see that that produces people who worship the Father. And we see that we are saved by the Son. Father, Son, and Spirit working together for salvation. And so the good news is indeed the power of God unto salvation for all to believe, not just Jews, but Gentiles of many stripes and of many colors. This is why Paul in Romans 1 says he is not ashamed of this gospel. And so Jesus saves the world and the Spirit applies that salvation one person at a time, changing families, changing communities as he does so. Let's tie this a little bit back in with what we were talking about earlier. Jesus using ordinary sinners, these kinds of things. Francis Schaeffer in his book, No Little People, writes... Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under his lordship in the whole of life, may, by God's grace, change the flow of our generation. So he's saying that doesn't matter how little you think you are, doesn't matter how insignificant you think your place is, if you are committed to Christ and he works through you, things greater than you can imagine can take place. 
Did you think that, well, did Edmund Kimball think that this young man that he's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with is going to become one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century? No, he had no clue how he would be a part in changing a whole generation. You don't know what God is going to do through you. It's not your responsibility to know. Your responsibility is only by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful in the places He calls you. You don't have to dream about going someplace significant. I don't have to dream about going to a big city. It's not what it's about. It's about being faithful where you are unless He calls you somewhere else. Most people do not come to faith because of the great evangelists like Billy Graham or D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon. I suspect that most come to faith listening to ordinary pastors, ordinary Sunday school teachers like Edward Kimball, or friends, relatives. In other words, the Spirit uses normal people in their weakness and even in their sin to reach those who are weak and guilty themselves. And sometimes we aren't even sure it happens, but God works so people put their faith in Christ, the only Savior in the world, by virtue of His sacrifice for sinners, which takes away their sin. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we are um, overcome with the enormity of the task. We are sometimes uh, overcome with how weak we are. Sometimes we are overcome by how sinful we perceive ourselves to be. (laughs) And so we sit on the sidelines. Help us to remember the greatness, not only of Christ, but of the Holy Spirit. Help us to remember that through the Holy Spirit we are joined to Jesus and in the fullness of God we partake of the divine nature in a way that we cannot really wrap our brains around. And it is you who fit us for the task you call us to. So Father, give us greater faith. Give us greater boldness and courage Not that we rest in ourselves, but because we're resting in Christ. And use us where we work. Use us where we shop. Use us where we play. Use us where we live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.